0: Today's sermon comes from Nehemiah 13, 1-22. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king." And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur. Son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food." Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love.
1: So I woke up this morning with a pretty serious case of pool head. And the reason I had pool head is because we spent the overwhelming majority of the weekend in the pool. (laughs) Uh, But Friday was the last day of school for those in Duval County. And we have a five-year-old boy who you might have just seen, and uh, he gets out at the middle of the day. And so we picked him up on Friday, and that afternoon as we got chatting, we we really quickly started making the list of what are all the things we want to do with our summer, this summer. We wanted to go fishing. We want to learn how to ride a bike without training wheels. We want to go to the pool like a thousand times. Now, there's only like 80 days in the summer, so... um, We want to camp out. We want to go to the beach. We want to go to Legoland. And all of those are awesome. Here's the deal. We're going to wake up on whatever the day is. We've been debating when school starts. We're going to wake up on the the eve of school starting back, looking back on that list and going, man, we didn't get to half of that. You know, it's a little bit like New Year's Eve where you make all your resolutions. You're going into the summer. You make your summer resolutions. And Then you get a little bit into it and you go, man, what was I thinking? I'm never going to get all that done. And see, on summer break, it's not a big deal because whether you go to Legoland or not is just not a matter of life and death. Whether you go to the pool a thousand times or a hundred times, doesn't matter. But this morning, what we're going to look at is when it comes to your relationship with Christ, how you begin, what your intent is, and whether or not, you live up into that intent actually has really significant consequences. See, when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, it's not just about summer break or not. It is a matter of life and death. And so this morning, as we come to Nehemiah 13, the question we're going to be asking is, what does it look like or how do we remain faithful to Christ? Keith already said it at the beginning, but we're at the very end of the book of Nehemiah. We're at the end of a series on Nehemiah. A little fact for you to know, Nehemiah is actually in the Hebrew scriptures, the end of both the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So as we get to chapter 13, we're, we're looking at a long story of the people who had been sent into exile. And then they had seen the Lord work through a series of foreign kings, work through a series of fortuitous events to bring the people back into Jerusalem. They had seen the Lord do amazing stuff and they themselves had done amazing things. And then we get to the very end of that story, and the question is about faithfulness. The question is about staying with the Lord. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah 13. If you don't have a Bible, the text is included at the top of your sermon guide. If you look real closely at verse 4, the story, there's this intro about reading the law, but then the story really quickly gets to a story about a man named Eliashib. And we've met Eliashib before. He's not the first, this isn't the first time. If you flip back to uh, Nehemiah, the end of Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah 3, one, and you remember that when Nehemiah showed up in Jerusalem, the reason he had come is the people had been in pretty bad shape. Jews had stayed, there was a remnant, but they had been under the oppression of regional governors. And then Nehemiah hears the story of what's happening and goes and asks the king for permission by the grace of the Lord the king sends him back and gives him permission to rebuild the city. He gets there, he takes an inspection of what's happening and says, the very first thing that needs to happen is we need to rebuild the wall. So if you remember back early in the sermon series, the wall was the distinction between them and the nations around them. For Nehemiah, the wall wasn't largely a defensive structure. It was largely demarcating that you're a separate people from these people around you. And then he goes and he lays out the plan to the priests and the people. And then in Nehemiah 3.1, here's what happens. It says, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. That when Nehemiah showed up to reinstitute the distinction of the people of Jerusalem, the, the regional governors had a problem with it. If you remember the story, they persecuted them, they mocked them, they threatened to kill them. But then at the the charge of Nehemiah, Eliashib is the first responder. Eliashib is the high priest, and he's the one who gets up and starts building. And because he starts building, his brothers start building. And because his brothers start building, the nation starts building. And in 56 days, the city is rebuilt. See, Eliashib starts really, 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 really well. Really well, at least in the story, he starts really well. Then you get to this knucklehead moment at the very end of the book in 13.4. This is now before this, Eliashib the priest, who we haven't heard anything about in 10 chapters, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. Skip down to verse seven. And I came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. So you get to the end of the book, and there's clearly Eliashib is acting a fool. And something has happened between chapter 3 and chapter 13. Now, before we get into that, it begs one more question. Who in the world is Tobiah? And why does it matter that Eliashib may have set him up a room in the temple? Well, again, if you remember back to one, back to chapter 2, don't remember that weird quote, the regional governors come around, they see the work that's being built, and then they start mocking them. Well, Tobiah is one of the regional governors, and he's the one who said, what are these feeble Jews doing? What they're building, if just a fox crawls up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. See, Tobiah was the chief of the enemy of the people of Israel, that he was the one who had resisted the people of Israel, And so now, as we get to chapter 13, we see this tension. We see Eliashib, who had started really well, Eliashib, who had courage and had led the people and in the face of risk and danger, stood up and began the distinction between him and the people. And now you get to chapter 13, and somehow, Tobiah is in the temple. See, Ammonites, were the people who, if you remember the story in Exodus, is the people, are, the people of Israel coming up to the land. Along the way, they asked permission to go through a nation, to go on the road. And the Ammonites were the people who said, no, can't come through. And so later, the Lord said, the Ammonites are not allowed in the community of Israel. Certainly, the leader of the Ammonites is not allowed in the community of Israel <laughs> the leader of the Ammonites is definitely not allowed on the Temple Mount. The leader of the Ammonites is definitely not allowed to have a house in the courts of the Temple Mount. But even if all that happened, you know who the last safeguard was? Eliashib. There was a high priest in Jerusalem. There was one whose role it was to secure the worship of Israel and defend her from foreigners. That was Eliashib's role. And what do we find out? It's Eliashib who facilitates Tobiah having a room inside the Temple Mount. Y'all are probably wondering, who cares? Like, what what in the world? Well, here's the thing. It wasn't just Eliashib's problem. The rest of the chapter, the reason those things are, are in there is this wasn't just a thing that Eliashib was doing. By this point, the people had also profaned the Sabbath. If you remember, they had, as part of their distinction, they set aside a seventh day where they did no work that was to facilitate their worship and demarcate them from the world around them. But then all of a sudden, over time, you find that the people have also profaned the Sabbath, that they've entered into trade with the cities around them. You also later get to the end of the story and you find out it's not just Eliashib, but it's all the priests. The priests not only have allowed the Ammonites in, but they've actually intermarried with the Ammonites. If you remember the beginning of the story, that was the first problem. They actually had to separate from foreign rulers. See, the point is this. What Eliashib is doing is not an Eliashib problem. It's a human problem. It doesn't matter what office you're in or how important You are or how well you started or how well you didn't start, what you see in Eliashib is this. You can't remain faithful to Christ on your own. Standing in your own independence, you remain prone to wander. So we get to a text like this and it's real easy for us to read it and say, who do I want to be? Do I want to be Nehemiah or do I want to be Eliashib? Do I want to be the faithful one or do I want to be the unfaithful one? The scriptures don't give you that invitation this morning. The scriptures are telling you that you are a I am a We are a It's easy to wonder how uh, a had actually gotten into this position. So you wake up and you go, so there's sometimes in your life that you just do something dumb and you made a really big, bad decision and, and it, there was no you know, ramp up to it. You just did it. And then there's the majority of the time where it's been a series of slow decisions. And then you wake up one morning and you go, how in the world did I get to where I am? That I started here, but there's these little small decisions I made until I wake up a decade later and I'm, I'm definitely in a place I never intended to be. See, for Eliashib, it started with uh, the people had stopped bringing in the tithe. It was Eliaship's responsibility to make sure that the people had brought in what was necessary for worship. As a result of that, the Levites stopped being able to be fed. And so then the Levites left. And if you know your Israelite history, the Levites are the ones who facilitate the worship. There is no worship where there's no Levites. And then finally, it was also his intent to to, uh, to defend the storehouses to keep care of them, to make sure that they're there for a reason. See, this is what happened. Nehemiah bounces. He goes back to Artaxerxes. And then Eliashib is left there as the leader of the people. And then really quickly, he's been given the stewardship of taking care of the worship of Israel, but he finds himself enamored with power. He finds himself distracted by politics. And so slowly he takes his eyes off what he was called to, and allows his heart to drift towards some other thing, to drift towards power. And then you end up in this weird moment where you have Eliashib, who's now more enamored with the Ammonites than he is with the with the temple worship, finding himself in possession of an empty storehouse. And then I don't know if it was his harebrained idea or if he was put up to it by Tobiah, but somewhere along the line, someone had a plan. I think we should let Tobiah live inside the temple. <laughs> See, Eliashib arose there at a long series of small choices that eventually a moment came where it just seemed to make sense that with temple worship waning, Israel's distinctiveness being on the block and this local regional power wanting to participate in their life, that Eliashib found it easy to compromise. But here's the thing. We just said, we're a ship. It begs the question, not just what happened, but why does it happen? Why are we in that position? You don't have to turn with me, but I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 7, um, starting in verse 15. Paul picks up this exact problem, and, and what he says is it's not just a, a Jewish problem. It's not just an Old Testament problem. Paul as the apostle who went to the Gentiles, the one who wrote half of the New Testament, I mean, he is like, there's Jesus and then Paul. This is what Paul's words are about his own situation. For I did not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my person, in my passions, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now listen, this is the apostle writing this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, Paul gives us a window not into what Eliashib did, but why. And this is what he says. He says, sin dwells in you. That on this side of Christ's work, your redemption's been accomplished. That you've been taken from being his enemy to being his child. That you've been taken from being in possession of your sin to not being in possession of it, to lacking righteousness and now being in possession of it. But sin still dwells in your members. You still have a sin nature because Christ hasn't yet returned. And so what Paul says is, well, it used to be that you were synonymous with sin, but now it's the case that there's two natures inside you. There is war in heaven, and that war is happening inside your own person. Let me give you a couple of examples from, me. you all might connect with it, but from my own life of what does it look like to compromise slowly over time? You know, I, uh, I came to Christ when I was 18 or 19, was trained by the navigators. I think there's some navigators in the room. Whoop, yep, yes, yeah. Um, and we, my bride and I came out of undergrad just committed to walking with the Lord. And we were ready for our life to look like whatever it needed to look like. And by grace, the Lord sent Jen and I into corporate America. And what happened is as the pressure of life happened, then some opportunities start, start to present themselves. And really slowly what happened is I transitioned from my primary focus being on uh, my distinctiveness and my willingness to follow Christ, a desire to follow him, to a really slow drift to workaholism, to a really slow drift to careerism, to where the, the thought that I would wake up with is what needs to happen within the politics of the office Who's gonna get the chamber in the storehouse rather than what is Christ calling me to do? A second example is uh, we also started out pretty courageous. I was like, if you ask my parents, anybody who, when you first come to Christ, it's like the zeal of youth. I just told everybody everything you ever wanted to know about Jesus. And I didn't know very much, but I told everybody everything I knew. And then uh, that included my family. But what will happen is over time, relationships would begin to become more and more significant. Like example at work, my boss would become an, a sponsor of mine. And so the relationship was more important than it used to be. And so what would happen is because of the significance of that, I would transition from courage to timidity. See, the significance of the relationship would cause me to back off of where I had originally started, a third is uh, by grace, the Lord's given us children. We have begged the Lord for years to give us kids. And in that process of praying and waiting, if y'all been through that, you also make the commitment that Lord, if you get like a little bit like Hannah, where you go, if you give me kids, I will give them to you. They will be yours. And you start out praying hard for them. And you're like, I'm gonna read them the Bible from the time they're like, I don't know, six months old, you know. And then you start to raise your kids with the world around you. And you start to think about things about how good is the kindergarten program they're going to go to? And what college are they going to get into? And other things start to creep in that drive you to raising your kids in performance rather than in rest. See, what I wanted you to see in this, this, this first window into Eliaship and through my own story is this. It doesn't matter how you started or what office you're in. You started with zeal or no zeal. You're a pastor, you just came to Christ or you've been successful at work or not successful at work. It doesn't matter. On your own resources, standing on your own two feet, you are not capable of long-term walking faithfully with Jesus Christ. Y'all sufficiently bummed? That wasn't to manipulate you. That's just the truth. Eliashib is not a, it's not a fake story. It's a story that actually happened. So where do we go from there? Well, by grace, we get to verses six to eight and we find out what is the difference between Eliashib the first time and Eliashib the second time. Y'all remember who was around when Eliashib got up and started building the sheep gate the first time? When he started building the sheep gate the first time, Nehemiah was there. And Nehemiah is the one who confronted the governors. And Nehemiah is the one who had the plan for building the wall. Nehemiah is the one who started building the wall. And see, with Nehemiah present, Eliashib was ready to respond to Nehemiah. But then we find out in verse six this. While this was taking place, while Eliashib was acting a fool, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And then I came back and found out what Eliashib had done. See, we find out even in the high priest this, that apart from someone outside of him, a spiritual leader outside of him, who would care for the people and who would lead them in faith and would lead them in repentance, that Eliashib was not capable. But praise be to God that Nehemiah was there. And so Nehemiah shows up and by the time you get to the end of the chapter, and he, he, Nehemiah does do this weird praying thing, but in verse 30, he says, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign and I establish the duties of the priests. That's he, Nehemiah shows up and Nehemiah does a couple of things. Nehemiah reminds them of who they are. He reminds them that they don't belong to the Ammonites, they belong to Abraham. That they don't belong to Egypt, but they belong to Yahweh. And then he walks them through the implications of that. He demonstrates to them how that's led to sin, that their sin is not just a breaking of a moral law, but it's an incongruence between who they are and how they're living. And then Nehemiah instructs them in what repentance looks like. He doesn't just shame them or guilt them, but he calls them to it. It says that he called them to return the the tithe to the storehouse. He tells them to separate from the foreigners. He cleanses them. He doesn't abandon them. See, because of the difference between the two stories of Eliashib is this. In one, Nehemiah was there and the other Nehemiah wasn't. And by the end of the story, Nehemiah comes back and repentance is, is back on the table But here's the problem. Nehemiah couldn't always be there. Nehemiah couldn't be with all of them all the time. Nehemiah couldn't change their heart. He couldn't actually do anything about the problem. And Nehemiah himself was a sinner. See, the reason it's so important that we understand Nehemiah 13 as the end of this long story is this. From Ezra to Nehemiah, it feels like things are, man, we are, Jerusalem's back. The worship of Yahweh is back. Things are on the climb. But then by the time you get to the end of 13, you recognize this, even Nehemiah wasn't sufficient. Through the story of Nehemiah, you see that the people need someone who's gonna lead them, someone who's gonna be with them. But that person's not Nehemiah. It points them to a greater Nehemiah. That's where I wanna spend the bulk of our time the rest of this morning. You know, into this chasm... There's about 400 years between, maybe 500, between Nehemiah and then Christ coming. And in that window, the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31 announces a promise from the Lord. And he says this, he says, a day is coming when I'm gonna make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And I'm gonna write my law, not on tablets of stone, but on their heart. And I will dwell with them as their God. See, looking into the the continued failure of the people, the Lord himself promises, I'm going myself to do something about it. And the thing I'm gonna do is I'm going to give them entirely new hearts. And it's into that window that we get the promise of Christ coming. So I'm gonna remind you a couple of things of Jesus this morning that we already talked about, but sin's a problem. Brandon talked about it during confession. The solution for your problem is not act right. The solution for your problem is not just work really hard at cleaning up your life. The solution for your problem is this. You lack righteousness because you're not capable of obedience. The reason Jesus was born and lived and humiliated himself in obedient life as a human is to give you righteousness. And then the reason Christ was crucified is not as a victim, but he took from you your actual sin so that you're not in possession of it anymore. So the big work of Christ is this, is he's exchanged places with you. Because if you're in Christ this morning, you're free. You've been relieved of the consequences of sin. But on his last night with the disciples, Jesus makes them this really sweet promise. John chapter 14. 13, they had just eaten. Y'all remember the story of him washing their feet and then they go for a long walk. And during that walk, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll ask the father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Unlike Nehemiah, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, the reason you are able to walk faithfully with Christ over the long haul is not this. Your perseverance is not a magic parlor trick but Christ himself dwells in you and with you. And he's the one who's working to bring about your salvation, working to bring about your redemption. See, the the way you can walk faithfully with Christ, the reason you can find rest, the reason you can calm down is because Christ came not just to accomplish your your redemption the first time, but he's with you applying redemption to you today. What does that look like? Well, he just said it here and we looked at it in Nehemiah, but he reminds you who you are, that one of the roles of the work of the Spirit of Christ in your life is this, is to remind you that your merit is in Christ, not in yourself. That's not just a truth for you to believe, that's a resource for you to live out of because day by day, the reason you feel pressure from life, the reason you feel the pressure to ally with Tobiah, the reason you feel pressure to bring uh, them into the storehouse, whatever that metaphorically looks like for you, the reason you're tempted to workaholism, to family taking an inordinate priority, whatever the thing is, is this, is because you've lost track of your identity. You no longer belong to yourself. By grace, you belong to Jesus and he's your merit. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is uh, the church has, has used this language for about 400 years. Me, I mean the church, I mean the capital C church. It says that uh, the Holy Spirit convinces us of our sin and misery. That one of the works of the Holy Spirit is, is not to beat you up, is not to heap burdens on you, but is to remind you of who you are and then show you how you're living. And then point out the misery that comes with how you're living. You see the difference there? See, the Holy Spirit endeavors to persuade you that sin is not good for you. That sin is not ultimately going to bring you life. That sin itself is destroying you, not helping you find life on your own terms. But then there's this sweet, this sweet third work that he does. He actually works to create a new heart in you, to give you a new will so that you want to choose Jesus. See, in summary, here's what I wanted to say about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. If you wake up in the morning wondering, am I secure in my salvation? The answer is yes, because Jesus died and lived for you. If that question goes deeper and you wonder my life doesn't always look like I think it's supposed to look. There's rest because the spirit of Christ dwells in you. The reason you have rest is because he accomplishes his purposes, not because you accomplish yours. See, the sweet promise of Jeremiah 31 is this, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just keep you from sinning. It doesn't make you just not a sinner the Holy Spirit actually takes the law of Christ, the, a, a love for your neighbor and a love for Christ and lays it on your will so that you wake up in the morning and you're not only capable of not being like Eliashib, but you actually are capable of being even more than Nehemiah was. That you're not able to just remain faithful to the law, but you're actually able to lay down your life and lay down your, your, uh, your sense of identity and expose yourself to fear and shame and guilt by walking across the street and being part of the redemption of your neighbor. See, in the spirit of Christ, you go from not just avoiding the risk of being a but you're actually able to live out of the spirit of Christ himself. See, you're capable now of way more than you ever were before Christ redeemed you, but it's not based on you. It's because the spirit of Christ dwells inside you. So how do we respond? What does it mean that Christ dwells in us and what should we do about it? Well, repentance uh, is a a big word that you've probably heard around the church. But faith and repentance, you've heard faith a lot more and we, we tend to assume that means, I believe some doctrines. But faith and repentance are twins. They're the same thing. And faith and repentance is this. It's simply agreeing in thought, word, and deed with what the Holy Spirit says about Christ and about you. Faith is when you're already following Christ and you continue to follow him. And repentance is when you haven't been following Christ and then you choose to follow him. See, the first act of our response to Christ's work in us is repentance. But repentance is not penance. See, penance is when I I think I need to do a set of works. I need to fulfill a certain type of burden so that God will be pleased with me or so that I can prove myself or demonstrate my merit to him. No, repentance is this. It's just a green with the greater Nehemiah that dwells inside you. It's just a green that sin is misery and that Christ is your benefit. But see, it's not just a green intellectually with it. It's a green in the way you live out your life. You know, I've um, I might have told this story before, but um, you know, on the topic of grace, what is grace? And the Holy Spirit's presence with us as a type of grace. Sometimes when my son starts acting a fool, a little bit like a, you know, like a five year old version of Elijah, he goes, Daddy, Daddy, give me grace. I want grace. I want grace. And one of the ways we've begun to train it, now this might land hard on y'all, but one of the ways we've trained him is I say, son, my discipline is grace. If Caleb weren't my son and he was acting a fool, you know what I would do? I would ignore him. I would abandon him. You know, we go and we play with other families and their kids. And when, when my son starts acting up, I engage. But when one of my neighbor's sons started acting up, I leave it to them to engage. He's not my son. When you wake up in the morning, if the spirit of Christ is on you about something, it's because he loves you. And because that thing is trying to destroy you, you're not in jeopardy. It's simply because you already belong to him that he is willing to work towards and bring about the conviction of sin. And then as he does it, Brandon said it during confession this morning, but when you come with confession, your sins are forgiven. You find the spirit of Christ, they're actually working to work out the situation for your good, even when it started with your sin. So what I want you to see is that our first response to Christ is repentance. And the reason it's repentance is because he's already demonstrated that he loves us and he is with us working out our will. You don't dwell on your own. You don't have to stand on your own two feet anymore. Christ has already won your redemption and he's applying it to you right now. The second and the final response is this. You know, you repent enough. You live through the pattern of like, I'm a knucklehead, let me come back. I'm a knucklehead, let me come back. I'm a knucklehead, let me come back. You know what it creates in you? If you're outside of Christ, it creates in you despair. It creates guilt and shame. And you're like, it's a burden. It's like a pile of rocks that continue to build up on your chest. But in Christ, do you know what it does? It makes you long for the presence of Jesus because it reminds you that every time I start walking on my own two feet, I start being a knucklehead. But every time I'm aware of Christ's presence, It leads me into repentance and it leads me into life and it leads me into flourishing. It leads me back into the way I was made. See, for us, our response at the end of Nehemiah, at the end of this demonstration that we're not able to stand on our own two feet, that we need someone to be with us, is first to long for Jesus to just come back. I don't mean that as a doctrine. I mean that as a hope. For 2,000 years now, the reason the church has been able to get up in the morning and live a distinctive life between them and the world around them is this. We're convinced that Jesus is actually coming back. We believe that he's going to step down into human history wearing a body and is going to raise you to new bodies. Repentance should produce in you a longing for Jesus to return and to end the need for repentance. But between now and then, what does it do? Well, he's already promised that he's with us, that he's dwelling in us. What repentance leads you to do is to wanna walk near with the Holy Spirit. He's not ever gonna leave you, but you can leave him. He's never gonna turn his back on you, but you can turn your back on him. And so this isn't works or performance. It's simply saying, I recognize the more and more that I sin, the more and more that I repent, that grows up into fruit that tells me It's sin and misery when I'm on my own, and it's life and benefit when I'm with the Spirit of Christ. I want to walk with Jesus. See, at the end of chapter 13, I want to give you two really practical examples, but it's a long setup to it. Because the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, you should do your community Bible reading. You should. Because the spirit of Christ dwells in you, you should engage daily in prayer. Because the spirit of Christ dwells in you, you should be part of a community group. You should come to church, you should gather for worship so that in the words of the leaders, the spirit of Christ can remind you of the gospel. See, those aren't works, those aren't independence. It's precisely because you know that independence is bad for you that you submit yourself to engaging with the scriptures. You, you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit leading you. You engage yourself in the community where the spirit of Christ dwells. Since we come to the end of Nehemiah 13, we'll come to the question of what does it look like to, to long-term remain faithful to Christ? And what we recognize in the story of Eliashib in our own story is we're not capable of it, Period. There's not an answer to that question. But by grace, Christ sent us a helper and it's his own spirit. His spirit deals with you and dwells in you and it opens himself up to being grieved by you, but never gives up on you. Christ today wearing a body intercedes for you. What our response to that is, is repentance. And repentance is just agreeing with the Holy Spirit about what's bad for you and what's good for you. See, when you agree with what's bad and what's good, he's creating a new will. You're actually changing what you want to do. You're actually changing your choices. Ultimately, the realization that we're not made for independence makes us long for the one we're made to be dependent on. It makes us long for him to come back, and it makes us long for him. Jesus, you are our king you're the head of the church. And Holy Spirit, you're the one that calls the church into existence. You're the one that raises the dead to life. You're the one that takes us from doubt to faith. We belong to you. We're made to be dependent on you. Our death came about as a consequence of independence. And so by your work, Holy Spirit, we confess that our independence is misery. And we're grateful, Jesus, that you bear with us, that you dwell with us. And this morning, Lord, we pray that you will come quickly. We pray that you would come back soon, physically, and between now and then, we pray that you would come near to us, that you would draw us near to you so that our hearts long to respond to you and to be near to you. And we pray all this because you're our Savior. Amen.